Good afternoon, Good afternoon, tennis fans. Welcome to the Yellow Ball Network, where you'll find all your tennis news. This is your host, Coach Denise, exploring tennis blessings and its effects on life's journeys with our mentors. Tennis is a wonderful sport, which can be the vehicle that takes you through life's journey. And our mentors can provide that roadmap for your journey. Each week, I will be interviewing these mentors, coaches who have paved the pathway for many tennis players and coaches. They have authored books and papers on tennis and on education and on other subjects and continue to give back today. Who are these mentors? Well, the first Thursday each month is Alan Fox, who is in Europe now, and uh, Linda LeClaire will be uh, covering for him on the first uh, Thursday in uh, January. On the second Thursday is today's uh, mentor, Coach Chuck Reese. On the third Thursday is Dr. John Murray. And on the uh, fourth Thursday is Coach Scott Williams. And on those fifth Thursdays, when that happens, well, stay tuned and you'll see who the mentor is. I would like to thank the Yellow Ball Network CEO, J.P. Weber, for hosting our tennis network. And if you're not following We Coach Tennis on Facebook, well, you're really missing some useful information. Of course, I also have to get on uh, JP, too, I know he's busy coaching and everything, uh, but those that think that I talk too long and don't like to hear my scratchy voice, my daughter went to a radio station and had uh, introductions made, so you wouldn't have to listen to me so long, but JP hasn't put him up yet, so until then, you're going to have to listen to my scratchy voice, but I'm sure JP will get around to it. Of course, the nice thing about Block Talk Radio is that if you can't tune in live, well, you can listen anytime you choose. Wednesday's American Tennis Broadcast, which is done each Wednesday by today's mentor, Chuck Reese, I, I don't remember the last time I've listened to it live. Uh, most of the time, I'm listening to it at 7 in the morning or 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. But that's the great thing about Block Talk Radio is you can listen to the broadcast at times you choose. And our broadcast is no different. Tell your friends about it, and when they want to listen, they just tune into it. And because I believe Dr. King, when he said, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter, each Thursday, when time is available, I will add my personal views on North American tennis, and naturally you will hear my biased views that the tennis journey should be going through our colleges and high school. Uh, I might say that uh, today I'm going to give more time to Coach Greasy for a couple reasons. Number one, the topic is so important, but number two, I just received notification from the FHSAA, which is the governing body of high school tennis in Florida. And, of course, I attend the annual meeting because I am the state's tennis representative, and I was informed not to come, that we didn't have enough coaches for a quorum on Monday. Uh, it leads me to my question I usually ask, is high school tennis a high school uh, activity or a high school sport? And I'm afraid we're learning the answer to that uh, a little too soon. And um, one of those uh, people to blame, I think, is our own governing organization, which unfortunately is not like many of the others. But that's going to be a topic for another uh, subject. Of course, uh, you've also read my uh, articles in Florida Tennis where I discussed this. And... Um, uh, needless to say, uh, you're going to uh, be hearing more about that in the future. And they might, almighty uh, willing, that'll be the case because I will still be writing at Florida Tennis Magazine. And of course, if you have 
disagree with me on uh, subjects, you're always welcome to express your view, too. Uh, when uh, I don't take calls because of an incident that happened, I do answer all the emails, though, that I get. And uh, you can reach me at Coach Denise, period, F-H-S-P-C-A at A-T-T dot net. And who knows, I may have you in the Florida tennis magazines uh, like I've had some in the uh, past. Remember, if you're not subscribed in the Florida Tennis Magazine or somebody's taking the last copy of Florida Tennis from the pro shop, you can always read the last issue on our FHSTCA.org website. All you have to do uh, is go to our homepage and you'll see Chuck Reesey come up, for instance, because he's one of our mentors. You hit on that, you go to his uh, website. If you hit on Alan Fox, when that comes up, you go to his website. The same with the other mentors. And when Florida Tennis goes up, you hit that, and you go to the last issue of uh, Florida Tennis. So I, I will be talking about this later on because uh, – you know, quite frankly, it's a little disturbing. But I would like to get to today's topic, and uh, because it's so important, uh, those of you who missed Coach uh, Chuck Reese at our January presentation when he was training the Florida high school tennis coaches, and I was embarrassed to say not enough of them, and uh, his five steps to building the championships programs is so important and uh, uh, it's even more important when you hear him talk about it. I could tell you the five steps because I've used it and I believe in it and like many of us older coaches, uh, we've incorporated and stole many of his ideas. Uh, but I think it's in, nobody tells it like the author does. And I think it's important that we um, sit there and let him have it. As a matter of fact, I would like, uh, if he can incorporate it, I don't want to put too much pressure on the legend, uh, but maybe instead of one of my two articles in Florida Tennis Magazine, uh, one of these issues, I just write one easy. Not that I'm getting lazy, but I think these five building steps are just so important. So I see the coaches here. Chuck, are you there? I am, John. Can you hear me okay? I'm I'm sorry for the delay of putting you in, but I just got uh, thrown off guard with the FHSAA uh, telling people not to come to Gainesville because we don't have enough coaches for a quorum, and maybe we'll do a conference call. I'm sure that'll save money, uh, but uh, I'm... What I like to do, and, um, and not, not because I'm lazy, but, because, you know, I like I just said to the audience, I could tell the five steps because I believe in them, I use them. But I think I'd like to give you as much time and the least interruption as possible today, and you explain the five steps in building a program because, like I've said in many of my articles, you just don't build a program overnight. Sure, sure, John. Uh, I, I can jump in there just a, a couple side notes. Um, we need to be inspired everywhere. I mean, it sounds like you're you're uh, the bummer of a meeting that uh, didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Are you there after all the work? so many people put in i mean people i don't people just say hey listen we're too busy people are on their cell phones all the time this or that but all of us want to be inspired it's it's not about that people have changed people haven't changed maybe the stimuluses have changed and we're being taken in a direction that's quite different but we all want to be inspired by something and uh, our kids want to be inspired and we we need uh, we need the tennis to be something that inspires our kids. I recently was working on an article about, and then I started the article basically that the pe the coaches were the people who always inspired me the most. I never wanted to be anything else except a coach, John. 
because those were mm-hmm. the people as a child growing up that I most respected and most, uh, you know, that I held in most esteem. But, uh, you know, so I, uh, to all the coaches out there listening, look, uh, it, it, we, we cannot give up this fight. It's people say, well, it's because of what we're selling, but look, we, we are, we cannot continue to dumb down, uh, what we're going after. I, I I just want to make this statement up front. The ideology that believes that making things easier will make it better and more popular is absolutely wrong, completely wrong. And I always say easy to pick up will be easy to put down. Hard to pick up becomes hard to put down. Many years ago, John, I was, I was privileged enough. I was, I got to sit on a board in my, early 30s with Arthur Ashe, if you can believe that. I mean, one of the heroes of all of us for, for tennis. We were in Chicago, and uh, at that time I was doing a lot with the USDA, and uh, I was one of these up-and-comer coaches, and people thought I had something on the ball, I guess. And the point is, is he, the tennis was a little bit in trouble as after the 70s, the tennis boom, and they thought, oh, it's declining a little bit. Our kids aren't playing as much. It's nothing like it's declined now. But he was asked a question, you know, he said, where is the problem with tennis? And he said, it's level two. It's always the difference between being someone who plays tennis and becoming a tennis player. There's difference between playing tennis and becoming a tennis player. He said the participation of the sport, we introduced plenty of people to it, but we have to get people get the hook in their mouth. And he said level two right there. And and that's very, very true. Um, and when you don't make it something that is really, really hard to go after, John and the coaches living out there, um, if you if you allow – anybody to be on the team in other words the no cut program i think has done a lot of damage some of you out there say no it hasn't no it hasn't i have 251 kids participating but i guarantee you i guarantee you that once you take the quality down by allowing people to just be on the program any participation sport without paying a price the kids will not aspire to excellence, they will not be inspired, and they will easily drop the sport and go on to something else. So easy to pick up is easy to put down. Hard to pick up is hard to put down. And and the kids, again, the more they have to sweat to get it, the more they're going to want it. Yesterday on my program, John, we had Randy Blumendahl, and I'd ask all of you all to go I heard it. what he had to what he had to say was just uh, right on the mark. He talked about uh, his high school days and how the coach worked them so hard. I think he was out in Oklahoma playing basketball, and the coach made him almost throw up every day at practice, and then he cut people and everything. And and he said not one player ever, ever thought anything different should happen. And uh, – we we really just have got to stop dumbing dumbing this this down, and it's uh, we 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 gain nothing. We do not inspire anyone, and the fallout is that it's been real easy to drop out, you know, for uh, a drop out of the sport. So, but I I want to tell well, you. Well, I encourage with, uh, everybody to listen to uh, uh, encourage everybody to listen to yesterday's program because it was. Uh, very important, and I think you covered it well. But I do believe that you know, for those coaches that really, and there's a lot, and it's the, it's the coaches, I think we have, we're blessed to have so many good ones. But to help them so they don't make the mistakes uh, we make, I think you're building programs. I think all the administrators should be listening to this. But let's give it, get it to the coaches so – they okay. know what to do, and those that are willing to fight with the administrators, so uh, they'll become better coaches. And those we lose, unfortunately, we're going to lose. Well, uh, let, let me let me finish that by saying that in my years, my first 22 years at Clemson University, I did not cut a player. However, the filter was a standard of excellence that they had to acquire, and they all had to make a certain mile time. 
My mile time was 520 and 515 always. And if the players made it, they got to play on the team. If they didn't make it, they didn't get to play on the team. My standard at the Citadel right now is 525. And you can make our team and be part of the mix if you make a 525 mile. Now, this is the way that works. I picked this time. If I was a high school coach, I'd pick something like a 550 or something like that. I'd probably with women, I'd pick a 630. Just pick a standard and said, no, you won't get cut, but here is the filter. This is the standard. And then you find out that the kids actually are doing something else than just participating. Again, participation does not breed excellence. It destroys excellence when you just allow anybody to participate. Excellence breeds participation. And what you want, again, I've used the analogy, John, so often, you go after grooming great orchestra members who can play the violin and the cello and the flute and play all of the greatest pieces that work and make it very, very competitive. And as a spinoff, you get a lot of good bands from the kids that get cut. You can always have JV teams and blue teams and gray teams and all the, hey, we got a tennis club. You were the last people cut. Go join this A-League tennis club or something. But the, but the, the sport itself, uh, you must allow to where kids really aspire to something excellent. But let's talk about the roadmap and the recipe. Well, the roadmap, I always use that as a reference. I have a good friend, Mike Springlemeyer, who is a, great coach in the upstate and his son played for me and was a excellent player back in the actually his national player of the year senior player of the year back in 1997 i believe and he did quite well in the doubles on the tour and he um but mike always talked about the roadmap and he said look you need to know two things you need to know where you're going sure but the more important thing, and this is to all you coaches out there, and in tennis, I was talking to a tennis player today about this, you've got to know where you're at. Now, listen, this is very, very important. No, very, very few players know where they're at. Most players fake True. where they're at. They, they try to act like they're much farther along than what they are. They... They become posers, they become pretenders, they become, uh, you know, they, they basically try to fake it. And, and I, I said, I've often said this, that the problem we have in kids getting better in tennis is the fact that in tennis, there's no accurate barometer for how good you are. Usually, if the kid goes to a tournament and says, hey, I just beat so-and-so. They're the number three seed. Well, what they don't say is, you know what? They had the flu, and they've been going through a slump, and by the way, something happened, and by the way, it was a default. The kids frame everything in tennis. For example, now that they play, John, now that they play uh, all these consolation, we call it, you know, the happy loser bracket, you know, is the consolation matches. Because we play so many draw matches, I'll ask kids, how'd you do? They say, oh, I was two and two this week. This is how kids have learned to frame it. Well, they got a buy, they got a default, and then they lost in the second round. They won one draw match in the back draw, so they say I was two and two for the tournament. So there's really not an accurate barometer. So what happens is I'll give you, I'll give you uh, the example why some sports are better. My my kids are both going to run cross country this uh, summer and the fall. And uh, my daughter swims. And these are both done on the clock. So my daughter's a swimmer. And I called home from a trip one time, and I asked my wife, I said, well, how'd she do? Well, she won her heat. I said, oh, great. And she said, no, it wasn't. She was four seconds off of her time. She didn't really go after it. I go, oh, so we have a clock in that situation. In tennis, we don't have an accurate barometer. So this is an interesting thing. I, I, told, I wanted to say that I don't cut players, but I have a, a, a time that you must make. If it's 526.1 or 525.1, 
they I, they don't get they have to be under 525. And and this is a very fair time for the uh, kids and and uh, in that their way I can say you know I don't cut any players if you have the heart to play if you have the heart to play you have the guts to stick with it and you can contribute I don't care how you get a tennis ball but the mistake we make with the no cut program is there's no standards so I would say to you coaches who do have the no cut program set a standard set a standard. And, yeah, don't, you don't have to cut the players, but make sure you set a standard that the players have to live up to and have to achieve. Otherwise, I don't, what you're going to have in a no-cut program is just a lot of average mediocrity, and, and you'll, become, you'll hurt, hurt the good players because association well, you're five steps to building a team – your five steps coach is going to help those coaches build that standard, and I, I don't want to lie to the public. About, I promise you, we're going to give them all to them, and I don't want to cut this we, short we because are, it's too we important. We are, coach here, uh, but I want to talk about the roadmap and the recipe. So, about three years ago, when I first started coaching, where I'm at now, we're struggling, and uh, my good friend Bill Emmendorfer from I need to credit him. He's an old football coach. He used to play at the University of Tennessee. And uh, we were up playing a match pretty close to where they live, and he came out and he said, listen, man, he talked to my team, you've got to learn how to compete, then you learn how to win, then you learn how to win championships. He said competing and building the culture is, is very important, too, he said. So I've come up with my five steps, and I've made a chalkboard uh, or a whiteboard uh, analysis sort of in my office and I have it for my eyes every day and I try to mark where we're at in building our program. So the first part, the first step in the roadmap or the recipe is to build the culture of excellence that you want. Now, excellence, I, I, there's a great quote many years ago I saw, as I saw it said, no, excellence is never an accident. It's always the result high intention, sincere effort, intelligent direction, and skillful execution. Now think of those descriptions there. High intention, going after something really, really that is, is important. Sincere effort, that means, listen, we're all in. We're going after this thing. This is not some after-school activity where we just try to have fun. Intelligent direction, have a plan. Have a plan of what you're trying to do every day and what you're trying to go after. And then skillful execution. So building the culture has to be your culture. It has to be a culture you can live with, a culture that you believe in, a culture that you, every day you can go to work and you say, you know what, we're going to have a rough day or we're going to have a good day but we're on track to building the right culture that we want day in, day out. The way you deal with the kids, the excellence you put in front of them, how you discipline the kids, what you get them to believe in, what you hold the standard for, everything has to be yours. Now, it doesn't have to be a Chuck Creasy's or John Denise's or a Bobby Knight's or, a, you know, Bill Belichick's. It, it has to be yours, something that you believe in, something that you can do each and every day. So that's the most important thing is to try to create that. And this is ongoing, but nothing good in the way of winning and having a winning program can happen without building the culture. And guess what? You're never complete with building it. You build it brick by brick by brick. After years work, you might only have the culture 20% put down. And then after two years, you might only have 50% put down. But it is the law of exponential growth once you get people doing the right thing. You must hold people accountable in building that culture. In other words, everybody has to be a part of it. Now, let me say this. Whether they're the manager or the number 15 player on the team or the number one player on the team, everybody needs to contribute. It comes down most problems in uh, with teams comes down to roles, goals, and expectations. In other words, the roles that the kids play, they need to know what their role is. The manager needs to know what his role is or her role. 
the goals, the kids need goals. They need the goals. Their goals should not be your goals. Most of the time with goals, coach, I will have the kids make goals, and then I put them in an, I put them in an envelope and seal it for four years. And then I let them look at it after the four years and say, how did you do? The goals have to be their individual goals. They're different. Individual goals are different than team goals. And then expectation, here's where you run into problems. As a coach, you may have expectations for players, and they don't have the expectations for themselves. And it is amazing. I've seen an athlete who was a scar at 14 years old, completely bail out at age 15, completely start to become a partier, completely run away from the pressure and the expectations. So that that all goes hand in hand. But the culture of the team must be built first. All right, so that's I, I think I've explained that. Do you have any questions, John, about the culture? But now, I, I think I made the point no. that coaches – coaches it's got to be yours it it doesn't you've got to decide on what culture you can go to work for every day and listen listen to me well you must be inspired to go to work every day i've done this for 47 years now coaching for 47 years i still get up and i'm proud to say i have still have starch in my shorts and i get excited about going to work every day and praise the lord on that one because I'll tell you what, it's, you know, it, it, it's, and it is about trying for mastery, not just success. If you go and ask the right things, mastery, and my wife has to remind me every day as I walk out the door, remember what your real job is, coach. Remember what your real job is. It's to pass on things to these youngsters that they might not get anywhere else. So any other quick questions on building the culture first, John? No, I think that's the important thing. I think the, the, the most important thing is that you've stated it has to be theirs. I know many times I've said, why don't, ask, why don't you tell us what, you know, how do you sit there and set up a coaching program? Because what works for me might not work for you. This is what I believe in. This is who I am. And it doesn't make it right for everybody. It makes it right for John Denise. You have to make find out what's right for Peter Smith. Well, well, well said. And and again, we all get tips from reading, you know, the Johnny Wooden books or you know how to be successful books and things. We all get ideas, but in the end, it has to be. It's just like a tennis player has to build their game and own their game. You have to own your own culture as a coach and as a teacher. But the second thing now, and you have to pass this on to your players now, and it's not something we used to have to pass on as much, but you have the kids have to learn how to compete. So build a culture that will learn how to compete. Now, being a competitor does not just mean, hey, I'm a hard trier. Being a competitor does not just mean, uh, I'm going to do my best. Everybody, ah, do your best. Have fun. Do your best. Being a competitor actually means that you engage in the pressure. You're all in. Emotionally, you're all in. And guess what? If you're a competitor, it's going to feel good when you lose. And listen, folks, it's going to hurt when you lose. It's going to feel good when you win. Excuse me, I said that wrong. It's going to feel good when you win, and it's going to hurt when you lose. Both of those are extremely important motivational factors. Both of them are extremely important, pain and pleasure. Uh, the old Anthony Robbins tapes, I've listened to those years ago, about pain and pleasure, reward and punishment. Losing is supposed to hurt. Pain engages the brain, they used to say. Don't ever waste the pain. Don't ever waste your pain. Listen to this about us. Pain is not the enemy. Pain. Pain. The quality of your pain is more important than the quantity of your pain. It's supposed to hurt to lose. Hurting when you lose moves you to a different place. You will say, I don't like it here, and go out and work. And the biggest tragedy we do with our kids is we don't let them go out and practice sometimes after they lose. 
the uh, people who are administrators think, oh, wow, you're getting punished if you have to go practice when you lose. No, you're not. You're basically turning bad pain into good pain. The administrators get it wrong. Uh, coaches understand, players understand. But it's supposed to also feel good when you win. You've got the athlete has to be able to pat themselves on the back and said, I did well tonight. And allow. And this doesn't mean throwing rewards at a kid, and, <clears throat> but it, it's, about, it's about engaging in a little bit of a little bit of feeling good about yourself is okay. You know, confidence, it builds a confidence. We had a, last night we had a ball game. Uh, my, my son's little league team had been on losing streak. They were 0-4, 0-5. They won a game. So afterwards, they did great about the way they handled it. They did great. They didn't rub it in. They came over and we had a meeting. And I've talked to them before about good goods, Good bads, bad goods, and bad bads. A good good is you do your best and win. A good bad is you do your best, but you take that gut-wrenching loss, and it hurts. But you grow, and you learn. A bad good is like you win, but you cheated, or you were a jerk, or you had bad attitude, or you had bad sportsmanship, or you cheated the game, or you didn't work hard enough for the win. A bad good will turn out to be a bad bad eventually. So... You know how I feel about participation trophies, John, and participation awards. Participation <laughs> awards, when you give kids something for nothing, is a bad good. A bad good turns into a bad, bad. Folks, dump the participation awards. I went to a banquet two weeks ago, and they gave out no less than 23 You're a Good Guy awards. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there were Three awards that meant something, and then there were 23 hanger honors, and I go, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? And the administrators don't get it. They're just trying to do a kumbaya experience and make it a nice event. But in the end, the kids do not allow your children to take participation trophies. They, they, they really end up being a bad good. But learning how to compete means you're all in. No tweeners. Tweener is an in-betweener. When the bar is set low, and, you know, but, but – let me let me make this point here, and I'll move on to the next one, John. The the most important thing that, or, or no, I don't say important thing, a trend that is happening is that administrators have lowered the bar. In other words, the kids are going after something, but it's not something of great importance. I'll give you a good example. I grew up in Indiana. We used to have one state champion in basketball for 640 teams, and the administrators got together and said, oh, this isn't fair to the small guys. So they made five class divisions in the state of Indiana. Now you have five different state champions. You have five runners up. And guess what has happened to the excellence in high school basketball in Indiana? It has come down drastically. And they, this class system for tennis is a, a debacle. The only place I think they should have class system in high school, John, is for football, maybe because kids get hurt or something like that. But in basketball, tennis, baseball, all of these sports, you should not have a class system because in the end they say, oh, they won the state championship, but it was only 3A. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Well, that's, you can throw as many parties as you want about that, but everybody knows that was a tweener award. And and it was just and, – and that's where we, as, administ- as administrators, they goof up. But here's what you need to do in order to teach your kids to compete. Coaches, make it competitive each and every day. Every day. And let me tell you what I do with my team. I divide it into three groups. I'm not saying – I came up with this because, you know, I tried challenge ladders. I tried everybody plays everybody. Now I have three groups. Group The first group is my top four players. The second group is my next six players, so that's ten total. The next group is four or five or six, how many I have on the JVs. I actually call it the blue team, the gray team, and the red raiders. So I used to at Clemson, it used to be the orange team, the white team, and the work team. So the what I do is the top four players, listen now, if you're number four at the end of the week, doesn't matter what's happened or whatever. You you move down to number five. 
for the next week. Number five takes your place. Five and four switch, no challenge match. You're out of the – if you are number four on Friday, you go down to the great team. Great team number one comes up. And then guess what? If you're number nine or ten or 11 or 12, if you want eight on your great team, if you are nine or ten that next week, you're off of the varsity. You go to the JVs. You go back over into the crummy courts, and you just competing. That's all you're doing that week. You don't get the A smorgasbord, A program smorgasbord of coaching this week. You got to fight your way back. And guess what? The top two kids of the JVs they move up. Now I got this idea from reading the book Jack about the General Electric guy, how he turned Jack Welch, how he turned around General Electric right. back in the early 90s. What The biggest point mm-hmm. I got out of that was that he rewarded the top guys and he fired the lower guys. His top 10% employees, he gave them a trip to Hawaii and everywhere else, gave them bonuses. And what he did to get things moving in the right direction, that allowed the, the cream to rise and then the, the slackers, who were the last 20%, he started firing the last 20%. If you're the last 20%, you're out of there. Now, the first year or two, people were saying, wow, it's about great we got rid of the slackers. Then the people who were in the middle, after two years, they might be down at the bottom 20%. So you see the picture here. Everybody's got to move. And I use that model to set a competitive bar for number two. Oh, you learned a long time ago that – yeah, you learned a long time ago that competition was not a dirty word and that uh, losing, uh, if you learn how to lose right, that's not nothing wrong with that either. And those that are going to work their way through it, you want as a team member. Well, next, the next step is learning how to lose, actually, and what you said it best. Uh, uh, Mr. Amendorfer said, learn to compete, learn to win. Well, you know what? Before you win, you've got to learn to lose. And I always have a statement at the end of my program on uh, Wednesdays. I always say that you're in the process of winning or losing every day of your life, and it has very little to do with a win or a loss. Learning to lose. Now, people right away say, oh, losing is a habit, so is winning. You you shouldn't want to – look, losing is going to hurt. But you've got to learn how to lose. What happens when you lose a lot? is that when you lose a lot, it hurts a lot, and people naturally run away from pain. When it starts to hurt a lot, the players must turn bad pain into good pain. They have to learn how to, whenever your kids lose, you've got to say, look, you've got to make a choice here. You either quit or try again, but you must try again with your whole heart. But it's always pain is there. Either quit or try again. Now, the quitting, you explain, it's not just quitting the sport, but they quit engaging. When kids start hurting, they mm-hmm. quit engaging, and it doesn't help if we have parents or coaches just say, oh, just have fun, just have fun. You know what? Losing is not fun. It's fun to win. It's a lot more fun to win. And the point being is that learning to lose means that you engage completely, and if you lose – you go back to the court, you go run, you go do something, turn your bad pain into training good. And then guess what? You won't lose as much later. You learn to lose less. You must lose in tennis, but you learn to lose less. And things start coming around. And then guess what? What happens if you lose and you make, again, good goods, good bads, if you make losing a good bad, where you gave your best but you lost and you do it every time, you start saying, well, wait a minute. I don't – wait a minute. This isn't so bad. I get this. I get it. It's it's annoying, but i got to work on this and this and this and this. And and that's what you want the kids to decide. You know, and I, I can teach you – I can tell you a, a good story here first. I, I wanted to make the statement in tennis, so, folks, you've got to learn. you got to have a stomach to lose and you got to have a stomach to travel. It's hard because you got to travel a lot in tennis, but then also you have to lose a lot. It's just the nature of the sport. But i got to tell you a quick story. So the current coach right now at Clemson is a wonderful young man, 
And uh, I shouldn't say he's young. He's probably 40 now. But he used to be young when he was on my team. And the guy made a drastic turnaround uh, in junior tennis. I can remember him being 14 years old. He was one of those guys you looked at and watched because he was a pretty good athlete, but he didn't win a lot. And Then he just, on uh, he's 15 years old, he went on a terror. He started winning all the time, and he ended up being one of the best players in the state. And later, he he was the hardest guy to beat in our lineup. He's the toughest out of anybody I coached. He literally could make 70 and 80 balls a rally, and he made so many players cramp. His, his name was John Bates. He was from a small town. Uh, and up by Charlotte in South Carolina. So I was, he was at a camp one time that we're doing. And I said, John, I'd like for you to talk to the campers here. And I want, I'd like to know too, what happened when you were 14 years old, you just made a turnaround. You used to lose a lot and you just started winning all the time. He said, coach, I I can't, I got to tell you the truth. It happened in the state tournament. We're in Columbia, South Carolina. I'd lost first and first round. And first, you know, in the consolation as well. He said it was the night I sat out there and I see, said, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm doing all this work. And I said, I'm so sick of losing. He said, I sat out there for about two hours by myself. And I said, I don't like the way this feels. I've got to do something about it. He said, I went back home and he said, I couldn't think of that much to do. But all I did was, I said, okay, I'm going to get up every morning at 6.30 instead of 7.15. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to run two miles three days a week. And then the other two days I'm going to hit 100 volleys off the backboard of forehand, 100 forehand backhand volleys. And I'm going to hit volleys off the thing. He said, Coach, it wasn't so much the running or not so much the volleys. He just said, I just changed <laughs> Excuse me, my mindset. I just decided. I decided that I was not going to go down easy. And I became a tougher out, and the more I won, the more people feared me. And the more people feared me, winning got easier, losing still hurt. But the point is, he said, Coach, I decided. So learning to lose is huge. I, I, I got this one thing to tell everybody. L Fido. L-F-I-D-O. Learn, forget it, drive on is the thing you tell your kids. And they've got the I'd like to mention one thing work. if I could interrupt for a second, Coach, on uh, losing. I'd like to, before you go on to how to win, I don't think most people realize that in 2016, if you were on the ATP tour and you were ranked between 50 and 100, which is, you know, God, I wish I could have done that, you had a losing record. So it's not the end of the world to lose. So we'll. But I'll let you well, get on to year, how to win now. The last year that Pete Sampras played tennis and won the U.S. Open in his last match, at the U.S. Open it was the only tournament he did not lose in. And so, you know, you've got to lose in this sport. So how do you win when you're losing? That's the, that's the test. And if you don't engage, mm-hmm. if you blow off a loss, look, when you give your best and you lose, it's like a broken bone if you do your best. When it heals, you heal twice as strong. It's in, but if you do not give your best, losing still going to hurt, but it's going to be like a disease. That even when you get well, you're still weak. And it does not, you got the loser's disease. You got the Q virus. I used to call it the Q virus, the quitter virus. <laughs> you know, you, when, when, you, when you go south and give up, it's the Q virus. You don't want that. I say to kids, excuse me, I, I go to the kids, I tell them, King Wimp jumped on your shoulders. You lost, you lo- it's like you got the devil and the angel on your shoulders, and you got to listen to one voice, and one says, oh, it's so hard today, I'm tired, I think I'll give up. And the other one is saying, no, don't give up, keep fighting, keep fighting. And this is... This is what goes on with the kids. I tell them King Wimp is going, oh, it's so hard today. And I tell the kids, if you listen to King Wimp, that's who you listen to. And I couldn't think of a good name <laughs> this last summer at camp. It was funny, John. I, I tell them the kids, uh, King Tough, King, that didn't work. Oh, one of the kids said, how about a king of whoop-ass? <laughs> 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 you know, you, let's, let's have King 
kind of tough or something. But anyhow, everybody gets the picture. But you don't want the Q virus anyway. So, so, yeah. so now how do we win? Learning to lose. Step number four to learning how to win. And, uh, again, winning doesn't come until you suffer enough. The tennis gods are in charge of you winning. Now, there's no tennis gods. But the tennis gods, I, I call it the tennis gods. I tell them, if you don't do the work, the tennis gods will not reward you. They will not reward you until you do the work. And even when you do the work, they usually test you, and you'll lose one more time, and then always there is a breakdown before a breakthrough. You always suffer your toughest loss. The almost, almost, shoulda, coulda, woulda, didn't win, and then you, you, you almost always suffer that one. John, uh, hang on just a second. I've got to greet somebody here. Okay, okay. just give me a second here. Just give me a quick second. Okay? Go ahead. I will be. Okay, yep. I, it's very okay, important. Well, hang on. Hopefully, Dad, you. Sorry, you God bless you guys. Okay, see you again. Please be safe. you got a beautiful family. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks for visiting. I'm trying to do two things at once. Always. But, but John, um, the thing is, you know, winning, winning, <clears throat> winning matters when people pay a price to win. Again, it's not an after-school activity. Winning feels good when you've worked hard. You've built the culture, you've done the work, you've competed, you've lost a lot. And then when winning comes, people, here's why I love about winning. Winning is the best dopamine fix you've ever had in your life. I told, yep. I've told people before I played tennis for three drugs I got, dopamine, adrenaline, and endorphins. Once kids learn that dopamine rush from winning, Everything else becomes an imposter. Here's where we mess up. John, winning does not feel better now than kids, what they get sometime from a party or doing the wrong things or the thrill of other stuff. When we dumb it down, it doesn't feel as good. And it's very simple. <clears throat> the kids, it's pain and pleasure. Winning should bring a degree of pleasure that the kids, that I, when we win a championship or won a championship, I will always ask the guys, is there anything that makes you feel this good? Is there anything that was sharing this effort with these guys around you, with these players around you? Is there anything that feels better than suffering and working hard and having this elation? So what we've done is we've made half elations half-hearted excitement, we've tried to can it. Just like we'll put it on Facebook maybe and show a, a smiling team and everybody's happy. Hey, look what we did. Isn't this cool? But, no, it doesn't touch the heart. When you have that victory that you've worked so hard for, you don't need Facebook. You don't need the thrill of other people. You know that you know that you know that your work was pleasing to you to your family, to God, to your teammates. And, and that's why you work hard. That's why you suffer. That's what inspires. That's what inspires. So the winning comes only after you lose a lot, after you suffer a lot. <clears throat> now, here's the deal with it. What happens to you doesn't matter, the winning or the losing. It's what happens in you. It's what happens in you. So I've alluded to the fact that, John, when we give half-hearted participation trophies and we do the wrong things and we, we reward mediocrity, we basically are diluting, polluting, and prostituting the greatest game in the world but also the greatest opportunity our youngsters could ever, ever have to grow up and be great leaders and great participants in life. And it's we the, the the rhinestones that we present with Facebook and with with uh, the different divisions D two D with the the five divisions for example in tennis what we do now five divisions in Indiana basketball 
We have L1, L2, L3, L4. Hey, wait a minute. I, was, I won the blue group. Hey, here's my trophy. When we do that, we just really dilute, pollute, and prostitute what the winning should, should really mean to kids. The hook in the mouth that Arthur Ashe talked about, we're fishing with a barbless hook. Even when we get it in the mouth, it flips back out. And, and therefore, I wanted to say that about winning, real winning. You win when you lose sometimes. You win when you lose. Right. And you lose when you win sometimes. So, And then, and then the, of course, number five. I think one of the proudest right moments in my coaching career is uh, a girls' double team I had in high school. And uh, the girls lost a tough uh, match. And one of the girls, when we, I went afterward, one of the girls said, have you seen her partner play better than she did today, Coach? Was that great or what? And I said, you're right on. So losing, if you're doing it right, you're, you could win when you lose. Well, you need to win when you lose. And if you do it wrong, you can lose when you win. Again, it's good goods, True. good bads, bad goods, or bad bads. And I, I think you can name and claim a team that way. Exactly. And, John, every coach has had that experience, you know, where it, you, you have to be able to teach the kids, though, that losing, it's how you lose and it's how you win. And, but the most important thing is a complete engagement of the heart where there is pain and there is a satisfaction level when you do win. And uh, there's rare moments when sometimes uh, it works just the opposite. So now winning championships, and I want to get through here and then see if you have any questions. So it's five steps. Build your culture. Learn to compete. Learn to lose. Learn to win. And finally, you learn to win championships. Well, here's here's what you have to do. They people. I've heard people say the second one's harder than the first. The first one's harder. It's this one or that one was harder. No, I think the first one is always the hardest. The first championship. What happens when you finally do break through? And again, you break. You're going to break through when you least expect it. It's when the tennis gods are ready to let you break through. You must do all the right things. You must appease what the tennis gods want. You must honor the sport, and then it will finally honor you. If you work for mastery and not for success, you will be rewarded. If you work for success and not for mastery, you will not be rewarded with wins. Once you do win the first championship as a team, the older guys then have a responsibility a deeper responsibility to step up to the plate and train the next generation of players coming up. Now, listen to me. This is a very fragile time, coaches. What happens very often is when people win a championship, they feel that that was their destination. That's just the start. That's when the responsibility comes. Winning a championship is when all the responsibility comes to pass on in a mentoring program, and hopefully a three-tier mentoring program, that's another program, a mentoring program you pass on to the younger players the responsibility, the expectations, the roles that they must play, the roles, the goals, the expectations. Again, you must pass on to the next generation. Then they must pass it on again. And when kids drop the ball and when they reject, this is very important. I've seen this recently. Uh, a youngster really had a stellar freshman year in high school to the place where coaches looking looking at him and everything, and then the next year it completely went away. <clears throat> I had an All-America player one year made the final eight in the NCAAs. The next year was talking about this to uh, one of my former players earlier today, actually. The guy's wonderful. He's doing a wonderful job. But he got scared to death of having to lead and having to repeat. And I said to the, both the parents of this other person and the other player, 
There's no heavier burden than a great opportunity. People, John, kids are not afraid of failure these days because there's so much Facebook and ways to prop up a participation trophy. Hey, my participation trophies looked almost and just as good as your winner's trophies. But here's the, here's the deal. Kids are not afraid of failing. They're afraid of success. They're afraid of the responsibility that comes along with it. So, therefore, winning championships has to do with what your older players do. Coaches pick your captains very, very wisely. Do not give a participation captain post to a nice kid who will not demand the work out of the others. Do not pick the kid who gets along just best with everybody. Pick the person that will hold everybody to a higher standard. John, I mean this without without reservation. My best teams always were the teams where I had a great captain and that captain or leader became more important than my position itself. The captain position, the leader on that team, is more important than the coaching position because that captain is able to function with and motivate and to take care of things at a level that the coach never, ever can go to anymore. So the mentoring and and the the, the deal on this, John, is that once excellence is found and once a player or a team starts winning, they will not want any substitute. They will not want any, any counterfeit thrill of a party or booze or chasing anything once they understand the thrill that working together serves. So, again, it's an ideology problem. I'm going to end with what I started with there, Coach. It's an ideology problem. If you talk to people who believe in socialism, they believe in everybody needs to be the same. And, hey, listen, everybody's a good person. Why can't we all just be a 70% achiever? That's not the way the world works. And, listen, athletics in our country is the last, the last, it's the last bastion of defense against mediocrity for our whole country. So, coaches, All of us have to get it right out there. We need to pursue excellence, not participation. Excellence will breed participation. If you have, if you don't do, if you don't cut tours that filter the kids to where they belong, do not allow your top lead dogs. You've got, I'll put it this way. You have thoroughbreds, you have show ponies, and you have plow horses. You keep your thoroughbreds with the thoroughbreds. The show ponies are guys that are tough. I try to keep them. I'd rather have a plow horse than a, a coach. We've killed the whole show already. And before I go, I just have to make a couple of things. First, I want to remind okay. everybody that next week's mentor is uh, Dr. John Murray is going to be on the show. I think uh, naturally we're not going to have Coach Denise's perspective uh, this evening because I just felt this was too important, understanding what the five steps of building uh, championship teams are. And I think, I don't think Coach is going to disagree with me uh, when I say that you need those steps because you're not going to have a championship until you have a champion on your team. So this is how you develop a champion. This is how you develop it. It takes. It isn't going to take three months. I'm going to tell you that. The problem with our education system is, you know, we're teaching to uh, test rather than subject matter, and it's the same thing in tennis. We have to be have the time to develop a culture. Once you get people to buy into the culture. Then they can learn how to compete, learn how to lose, learn how to win. Then you're going to have some champions on it. And I've said it a hundred times. Coaches take too much credit at times for winning. Coaches take uh, get too much responsibility for losing. They get blamed too often. You never hear me talking about who I coach because the winners are who the people that take what you've given them and became a champion. And without a champion on your team, you're not going to have a championship, I will tell you right now. 
Coach, yes. John, can I just make one last comment? Remember, coaches, yes. the behavior of a champion must be done before you win championships. It's not a belief. The behavior has to be there. It's not just the way you think. It's the way you behave every day. Thank you, John. Appreciate being Thank on. Thank you, Coach, and God bless you. And uh, please tell your friends next Thursday our mentors will be with you. Coach Creasy will be blessed to have Again, next month on with us, and tell your friends about the broadcast. Hopefully, uh, J.P. Weber will have my introductions on. You won't have to listen to my old raggedy voice as much. But I have a blessed week, and I look forward to talking with you again next week. Bye now. Take care. Like what, hon? Why? Oh, you could have heard, turn up your, uh, on speakerphone. That was, oh, no, I don't think that was, that, I should have told you that. That was my fault. Uh, because I don't think that would have uh, affected it. I hope not. Yeah, I probably should have done that to find out for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let me just get this. God, this malware driving me crazy. Yeah, we have a malware problem. Yeah, and it keeps racing. It keeps getting rid of it, but it doesn't. Uh, where's my uh, Windows now? Come on. Can you hear it on your phone? No, thank God. I can't get, uh, I used to have all these things up too. Okay, oh, that's squirt. Okay, there we go. Okay, that's there. So let me put that there for now. Let me go back to here. Okay, where am I? Okay, let me be doing that, and I'll turn the grill on, and I'll turn the remove of water. Okay, that's on.
Okay, you want to give me the lube? Water a lube, huh? Well, I can put your hot dogs on the other end so they just cook slowly. And then I'll put down. I got them. I'll get them in a little while. You ain't kidding that you had the money. God, you got to cut right in half, honey. I was doing it. Yep. Yeah. 